Attorney General Derek Schmidt is working hard to return to an office in the Capitol where he previously served as a state senator. He's campaigning for the Republican Party's nomination for governor in 2022 and a shot at challenging incumbent Democratic Governor Laura Kelly. Mr. Attorney General, welcome to the Kansas Reflector podcast. Tim, thanks. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, you're in the running to possibly be the most frequent contributor to our podcast. Uh, we, the, the numbers are not in quite in yet, but this is the third or fourth time, I think. It so, is, uh, and uh, maybe the second time in this room, and I think we've mm-hmm. done a time or two when you're still over in the Capitol. So, yeah, we just got to keep the seat warm for you. All right, so the first core political question, why run for governor? Well, I, I think we need a new one. That won't be surprising to anybody. I've been disappointed in Governor Kelly's uh, leadership and her work as governor. Obviously, I'm a Republican. I have different philosophy of government than she has. And, you know, I think if you need a new governor and you believe that, then step up and run and give folks a choice. I like to think I have some, you know, good skills to contribute, a lot of experience in state government, solid conservative record. I think that, you know, Kansans are going to respond to that. And I also think that, you know, there are going to be a lot of Kansans who want to move forward and not relitigate the past decade. And uh, we offer sort of a fresh face, if you will, and a a new direction while still being, you know, a trusted leader who people know. Mm-hmm. So on that point, relitigating the last 10 years, and I think Laura Kelly will certainly, part of her campaign strategy will be to precisely do that. Uh, she might mention Governor, former Governor Brownback a few times in her campaign. One of your opponents in this GOP primary is former Governor Jeff Collier, who was worked for seven years as lieutenant governor for Sam Brownback. Uh, why are you the better choice, and what kind of relationship do you actually have with him? Well, Jeff and I have known each other 25 years. We're friends. I think he would say the same thing. Obviously, things are a little awkward right now when you're competing for the same job, but the sun will rise tomorrow and we'll all move ahead. Mm-hmm. I do think that you know Kansans are ready to turn the page on the last 10 years. They don't want to refight the same fights. They want to have somebody with solid conservative principles who also has the ability to say, let's look at things freshly, let's do things differently, and not get sort of sucked back into the vortex of old battles. And I think that uh, I offer a a sort of a cleaner choice, if you will. And I also want to point out, you know, so far, thanks to Kansas voters all over the state, I've never lost an election. And we're in this pickle with Laura Kelly because, uh, you know, my friend not only has lost elections, he lost this election and lost the office to Laura Kelly. So I think it's very important that we move forward. Yeah, just to clarify, Jeff Collier narrowly lost the primary nearly four years ago to Chris Kobach, who then uh, proceeded to fall on his face in the general election. Uh, okay, some lightning round on some key issues. You've, we've uh, gone over some of these before, and, and I, I don't think I'm going to stump the attorney general here. Uh, what about abortion rights? I'm a pro-life. Period. Period. Dot, dot, dot. Why? <laughs> well, you know, the, the abortion debate is not unfamiliar to anybody. People have strongly held views, strongly held feelings. It's, you might call it a mature issue. People know mm-hmm. what they think about it. Uh, I've got a solid pro-life record. I've probably done more than anybody else in the state to stand up for pro-life values and defending pro-life laws the last decade. So I've been in the middle of those fights. I've led some of them, and I believe in the cause. So speaking mature, you know, Roe v. Wade is actually a mature precedent, but there's many people that would like to see that overturned. That could actually happen in our lifetimes. Uh, but we have a constitutional amendment on the ballot. You support the amendment? Absolutely. In fact, I you know, worked with some of the legislative leaders in trying to craft it. Uh, obviously, that amendment is a response to what I think is an erroneous decision of the Kansas Supreme Court that somehow managed to find in the state constitution a right to access abortion services that I just don't think is there. 
But nonetheless, here we are with the court decision, and it's really critical that Kansans uh, have the opportunity, as they now will, to decide whether that's the way things should be or whether there's not such a right in the state constitution. My own view is it's not there, and voters uh, would be better served to approve this amendment and make that clear. Yeah, voters will be able to do that on the same ballot in August of 2022, in which they'll vote on whether or not they want you as Republicans want you as the nominee for attorney general. So that's one year out. Uh, gun laws, Second Amendment. You know, I'm a strong supporter of the Second Amendment, always have been. Uh, we've litigated a lot of cases regarding gun rights. And in Kansas, I've worked really closely with the legislature, actually during all of my tenure in, in every office I've held when I was in the legislature and now as attorney general, to try to sort of beef up uh, Second Amendment rights and some of the privileges. So, for example, uh, this last session, you know, we, it took us three years to get there, but we finally got a law passed over the governor's veto that seeks to maximize our ability to get reciprocity recognition from other states for Kansas concealed carry permits. Obviously, you don't have to have a permit, most folks, to carry in Kansas now uh, because we're a, a so-called constitutional carry or permitless carry state. But there are still advantages to obtaining a permit. One of them is reciprocity when you travel in other states, and so we want to maximize that value. And, and the issue there is that maybe other states are a little more thoughtful, and uh, they actually have permitting rules. Is that is, or just crossing the border with your gun the issue? I think period. the issue is that the, there are a lot of different approaches to Second Amendment regulations among the states, and uh, some states are more restrictive than Kansas is. Mm -hmm. We want to maximize the number of states where Kansans get value for their Kansas permit when they're traveling uh, elsewhere. Right now, I think we're at either 40 or 41 states that recognize a Kansas permit. So okay. it, it is a high value <laughs> um, uh, item for those people that travel and want to exercise a Second Amendment privilege by carrying a concealed firearm. Yeah, and you can avoid all that hassle of what's going on in another state. Uh, a, an issue certainly to, to probably not to be resolved uh, if you become governor. Uh, is Medicaid expansion. It's an issue that's been debated in Kansas a long time. And, and uh, you know, the, there's the pol largely the Republican Party says no to Medicaid expansion. It would be hundreds of millions of dollars funneled into health care in the state. But I think for political reasons, not for health reasons, uh, people say no to it. So what say ye? Well, I'm a, I'm a real skeptic on the idea of Medicaid expansion. You, you hate to never say absolutely heck no, not ever, because you want to listen to arguments and new information. But I haven't seen information yet that persuades me it's a good idea. I think a couple of things. Number one, state spending has grown at a record pace over the last 10 years under both Republican and Democrat governors. And at some point, you know, the old expression, if you're in a hole, stop digging, has to kick in. I, I do think before Kansas starts to expand an entitlement program that it then loses control of as a practical matter. Mm -hmm. You want to be very, very hesitant, as our legislature has been. So that's number one. Number two on Medicaid expansion, I would want to make absolutely certain before, you know, even having a serious discussion with anybody about it, that there's some type of either requirement to work or other provision in it that, that doesn't just make this a welfare program that so makes most it of the some eligible type of, uh, people for Medicaid expansion don't they work in some capacity? Uh, many do, some don't. But the whole point is that the debate right now in Kansas hasn't involved a work requirement. And I okay. think that's a really critical piece. Mm -hmm. So you know, the reality is this isn't going to happen anytime soon. There are strong majorities opposed to it in the legislature. Mm -hmm. I think Governor Kelly has spent and and. Uh, uh, you know, she sees political advantage in continuing to pound on the issue. She knows it's not going to pass anytime soon. Uh, it does and, seem to be uh, an issue in which the, uh, when the Republican legislature says no, she can still then go out there and talk about it again. Uh, you know, she, she'll, if you're the nominee, you're going to hear her at a debate 
maybe in the state fair in Hutchison, tell you that you've lost your mind because you're opposed to Medicaid expansion. Well, I understand that. But, you know, I also think that particularly in this, uh, you know, after a year of COVID and all of the uh, uncontrolled spending out of Washington, there's a new sensitivity to the idea. You know, the old argument is it's free money. Why don't you take it? And the reality is Kansans are much more skeptical of that notion today than they were even a year and a half ago because Hmm. of the unbelievable amount of so-called free money that is in fact all of our money that's rained down from Washington. So I, I just think the Medicaid expansion debate is, uh, is, is, it's about where it's going to be. Okay. Uh, public education funding, you've been involved in the legislature and those kind of school funding debates. Uh, just where are we at in terms of the legal framework out of the AG's office? Just kind of a status quo for the moment? Well, current status is that the second lawsuit, I call it the second, the, the, the most recent lawsuit, still remains pending. People lose sight of that, but that lawsuit Because the court been, hung on to it. The court hung on to jurisdiction, yeah. mm-hmm. so it's still pending in front of the Kansas Supreme Court. The legislation that um, uh, got that lawsuit, I'll say suspended, for lack of a better word, that, that largely satisfied the court mm-hmm. remains in effect. Uh, I do think one of the big issues on the money side going forward is going to be that cost of living adjustment that was built into the legislation. Uh, particularly if inflation starts to kick in and you know, what has been an already very expensive mandatory increase in spending every year becomes uh, substantially more. So I forgot that. There's like a CPI yeah, feature. Right. Looks like mm. uh, right now it's maybe $100 million a year, give or take, increase every single <laughs> year in perpetuity on top of everything that's already been done. So that's going to be a debate that comes back at some point. But here's what I think the opportunity is. You always want to look for you know, the opportunity, not just the challenges. I think the opportunity is because there is so much money in the system right now. Uh, and the system is, in the court's view, constitutionally compliant. It creates an opportunity to have what I would characterize as a more thoughtful discussion about how education services are delivered, the role of parents, the role of kids, mm-hmm. the structure of governance, all those really difficult issues that frankly, the state rarely gets to because the, the money debate has sucked all the oxygen out of the room. Hmm. So there is an opportunity here. The goal, after all, ought to be uh, to have an educational system that provides the best possible opportunity for every kid in Kansas to maximize his or her potential. And that's not a one-size-fits-all proposition. You're a public education guy, right? I am. Independence, you went to public school? You bet. And KU? Rock chalk. Yeah, right. Well, some people some people survive KU. I don't I don't know how it happens that you know why you didn't go to K State and um, so when you're thinking about college, there, are there any old stories you wrote as a college journalist that you don't want us to read? Oh, there probably are. I don't know what they are. Well, that tells you you're an honest person because it, when I look back at what I wrote in college, I'm horrified. And so if you had told me there was nothing you were embarrassed by, uh, I would know you're fibbing to me. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to the AG's office. You know, we have Black Lives Matter protests. They they talk about defunding the police. I'm not sure really that's what they were after. But if you go back 50 years, we have problems with police violence. I mean, in the 60s, a civil rights protest. And we've got problems with excess violence right now. You know, you work with law enforcement a lot. What, where's, where's the proper place to go with this to address it? I think Kansas was ahead of the curve compared with many states in actually professionalizing the work of law enforcement. We were one of the relatively early states that created a, a, 
post, peace officer standards and training, licensed officers and held them to professional standards. And I do think that the right tool for dealing with any professional misconduct issues, whether it's individual officers or whether it's more of a, a system-wide discussion of are the standards correct, that has to be done within CPOST, within the organization that mm -hmm. is the licensing agency. This is kind of an organization. There's lay, laymen on there too, but probably lawyers and law enforcement officers that actually can formally strip somebody of their license That's to right. be a law enforcement officer if they, if they do wrong. That's exactly right. Yeah. So it's kind of a p policing agency entity for police. And, and not every state, uh, even relatively recently, there have been states that haven't gotten there yet, that Whoa. haven't done that sort of licensing. And so I think it's something of an untold story that Kansas was so early on that. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's a, you know, it's a very valuable tool for ensuring that law enforcement is a profession, not just a job. Because the fear would be you would screw up in Topeka and then you bounce over to Garden City and nobody knows about your past, but Seapost would. That's right. And, you know, there have been discussions about whether that information needs to be uh, more, more readily available. Yeah. And, and I think that's a legitimate discussion that, uh, you know, the legislature ought to have with Seapost. Well, the power the that right we balance. give law enforcement officers, life and death, I think... It, 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 an, an equitable arrangement would be to allow the public to see uh, <clears throat> when, when those people go sideways. Well, I've had the privilege of talking to a number <laughs> of graduating classes of new law enforcement officers in Kansas graduating from the academy. And, you know, those graduations typically occur down at the training center in uh, a room that's named Integrity Auditorium. I do think that's very important. Uh, and I always tell the graduates, um, you know, you're signing up for a very difficult job. We trust you. We respect you. We appreciate you. But we also expect a lot out of you. Mm -hmm. And I believe that. All right. You're leaving the attorney general's office. There's some Republicans running. I, I'm not sure any Democrats stuck their head out of the hole yet. But Chris Kobach, Senator Kelly Warren, there's going to be others perhaps. Do you have a preference? Yeah, I'm staying out of the attorney general's race. I have my own race for governor. I have supporters, strong supporters, uh, who are backing me for governor, who are with each of the three Republican candidates who have announced, at least so far, to be my successor. And so, you know, we'll let Kansans sort all that out. All that I hope is that when the dust all settles and when January of 2023 comes around and I'm handing off the reins, if you will, to the attorney general's office, I hope I get to hand them off to somebody who wants to maintain what I believe to be a solid standard of professionalism that we've demanded and expected the last 10 years. When I got there, the office was in uh, something of disarray. It had had, uh, I was the fifth attorney general in 10 years and they are four year terms. So you can imagine the turmoil that had ensued. And we have fixed so much of that, as I hope to do broader, more broadly in state government. We, we identified problems and we fixed them before they became crises. We focused not just on the big headline issues, but on lots of little day-to-day -day stuff that really matters. And I just hope whoever comes next wants to do all of that as well and make it even better. Yeah, before you got on the scene, it was a bipartisan problem. It was chaos, deluxe. Uh, you know, it was in, if you're a reporter and you want to just write about problems in government, it was a gift that kept on giving. Uh, so we have the death penalty. Why maintain an unused capital punishment law? Well, I st of course, I believe it ought to be used in appropriate cases. But I still believe that there is, um, uh, at some level, it's just a matter of justice. There are some homicides that are so heinous, and this case is defined by law, that justice demands uh, the old notion of an eye for an eye. Mm -hmm. Now, if the state wanted to go a different direction, obviously a majority could do that. But... I am one who thinks that we ought to fix the Kansas capital punishment law so that it can actually be used in appropriate cases and not to scrap it. Okay. Um, let's see. You, you, your office puts out a lot of news releases about you signing on 
to issues and legal battles in other states. As, as an attorney general of Kansas, do you think it's important to represent Kansans' instincts on those issues, or is it just a way to uh, get some attention? Well, we join, they call them amicus briefs, friend of the court briefs. Sometimes I actually join as a party, but often I'll join as an amicus, a friend of the court, a non-party voice for the court to consider. Uh, and we do that on a variety of issues. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's issues where Kansas just has strongly held public policy views. For example, I often join amicus briefs on abortion issues as they're litigated around the country. That's obviously an issue where Kansans, as we've already talked today, have strongly held views. I'm clearly on one side of that. I think a majority of Kansans are. And in any event, Kansas public policy, as reflected in state law, mm -hmm. reflects one side of that debate. And so we think it's helpful for us to participate in trying to shape the national judicial approach to those issues because ultimately that does affect us in Kansas. So too with Second Amendment issues, same type of notion. Uh, other times there are more, I'll call them, uh, I was going to say rifle shot issues, but coming after a Second Amendment comment, that might not be the best metaphor, but other narrow issues where for one reason or another it seems that Kansas has a particular interest. For example, uh, in quite a bit of the environmental regulation uh, litigation around the country. The Keystone XL pipeline is a good example of okay. that. Um, you know, our, our view is a couple of things. Number one, Kansas is a relatively large petroleum producing state. We have an interest in moving petroleum products around the country. Number two, we have a lot of pipelines. We have an interest in pipeline law. Uh, and number three, we're, you know, believers in, in private investment, not just in the petroleum sector or the pipeline sector, but across the board, and, and therefore certainty in the law. The idea that when the government gives you a permit, you now have a right to be heard before the government changes its mind, goes another way, and leaves you stranded is really important for investment and growth in our state. So, you know, it just depends on the individual. Part of it's economic, political, and even philosophical. That's why sometimes you get involved in this. All right, let's just skip right on to the biggest news story of the last year and a half, COVID-19. And, uh, you know, you have been a player in the development of emergency management law in Kansas, and actually a Johnson County judge decided that the latest product of the Kansas legislature uh, was unconstitutional. It was actually a bill passed by the Republican-led House and Senate and signed by the governor. So just help people understand what's going on there. Well, there have been so many moving parts. I mean, here is, at least from my vantage point, sort of the big picture, the arc of development in emergency management law since the start of COVID, since early March of 2020. Kansas emergency management law generally has worked very well, and I think at its core still does. It was never designed for the sort of long-running, very intrusive type of emergency, widespread geographically and, and, and in terms of the segments of, of society it touches, that we have in COVID. And so the law had to be stretched, and the governor certainly stretched it. I mean, in my view, she stretched it beyond the breaking point in a number of cases. You'll remember way back in April of 2020, the, the sort of the first uh, battle over her authority uh, where she, you know, made the decision to order churches closed and leave abortion clinics well, she open. Wanted, I which, believe, to be finer point there, she wanted to s severely restrict uh, capacity, the, the number of people in the churches. She didn't close any churches. You know, restricting a church of two, three, four hundred people who typically show up to a capacity of, I think it was 10, is functionally ordering it closed. But I, okay. I, I, fair point. Yeah. I mean, I understand. But you're so, right. I think even she and she probably knew when she issued that order that it was unconstitutional. But at that moment, they kept having these massive death uh, uh, delivery clusters in churching events. And I think coming up on Easter, she was just trying to save people from themselves. Coming up on Easter, coming up on Ramadan, coming up on Passover, it was mm -hmm. uh, it was uh, a, a 
it was so a, she turned a out to be wrong. Thing. But on in that. any event, the, yeah. the bigger point here uh, is that that law got stretched and and I think contorted in ways that not only were never intended but that were illegal. And you know we had those fights, those scuffles early on. The legislature came back in June in special session and overhauled uh, the emergency management law. That was where we, for the first time, got this notion of no more business closures. You can't just start picking winners and losers in the marketplace, shutting down small businesses uh, without some type of legislative oversight. Then we went through the fall, and in January of uh, this year, 2021, the legislature once again overhauled the law, Senate Bill mm-hmm. 14. Mm-hmm. Um, sunset some of the provisions to give itself time to deal with them again during the legislative session, but didn't sunset all of those provisions. Some of them were permanent changes. And then along came so-called Senate Bill 40 later in this legislative session this past spring. Senate Bill 40 had a whole bunch of moving parts in it, one of which was designed uh, to give, in this context, parents, it's not limited to parents, but any aggrieved person, I think is what the statute says, the ability to go to court for expedited review of local government actions that are, are mitigation in nature. An so example idea, of that might be if if I, I have kids in a local school and the school wants to wear a mask and I hate masks, I can just uh, trot over to the courthouse and expect uh, somebody to give me an expedited ruling on my mask objections. That's right, because uh, you know one of the things that became apparent over the course of, of the COVID response as time went on was that the legislature had addressed the centralized power of the government, the state-level power. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the decisions were locally made. And many citizens, certainly not all, but many citizens were equally as aggrieved by local decisions in their community as they were by the state's decisions. So I think the legislature's idea was give them some type of an expedited voice to make sure that they can be heard timely. That was the mm-hmm. concept. In any event, that happened in the Shawnee Mission School District. It was parents versus the school district. We weren't in the middle of that case. They were fighting specifically about this expedited review provision. Right. And, and then the surprising mm-hmm. thing happened when the judge, uh, without any request from either party, uh, decided that perhaps the whole statute was unconstitutional. Uh, nobody was arguing that, but the judge observed it and at that point asked us to intervene in the case, invited us to, to defend the constitutionality of the statute. Mm-hmm. We did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was not persuaded and ultimately struck down the statute, calling it unenforceable. Uh, we looked at that order and found it puzzling because you know we understand the difference of opinion with respect to the expedited review provisions that were really at issue in that case. We don't agree with them, but we understand them. But the way the order was written, it sure looked to us like the court may have stricken the entire statute, not just those provisions that were at issue. And that has the potential to create real chaos. I mean, there's a lot of parts of the Emergency Management Act of Senate Bill 40 that really weren't controversial. They weren't in dispute. They might be needed going forward. And now we don't know if they're in effect or not. Mm-hmm. So, we and went, so part of that included legislative oversight of emergencies. So legislature took a much greater role. That seems to have been stricken. So that's exactly where are we at right. right now? What emergency management law should Kansas be operating under right now? It's uncertain. That's the bottom line. Here's, where, here's my take on it. Uh, I think that, uh, I actually think that the court should have only enjoined, blocked, stopped that narrow provision about expedited review and everything else still ought to be in effect. That's what I think should be the law and we'll actually uh, be asking the Kansas Supreme Court to enter a stay and and block the lower court's order, leaving everything, at least all of that stuff in effect while mm-hmm. we litigate out the narrow issue that got this all started. Mm-hmm. That's what I think the law should be. Are you optimistic be. they'll give you that stay? I'm optimistic they should. They should. Okay. Uh, I think that, uh, so that's what I think the law 
that, that is the best reading of the law at this point. If it turns out that that's not to be, if it turns out we don't get the stay and therefore at least potentially the entirety of Senate Bill 40, the most recent enactment, uh, is, is not available for use, then I think you go back to the most recent prior enactment. That would be the January bill. There are several provisions in there that probably are not still in effect because by their own terms they sunset and we're past uh -huh. the window of the sunset. But there are other provisions that didn't sunset. For example... There's a provision in Senate Bill 14, no sunset on it, that bars the governor from declaring a new state of disaster emergency for COVID, at least during the remainder of this calendar year. Well, that's that unless so for COVID, for so COVID, but and, and, and I, without the permission of the Finance Council. Okay, yeah. and I just think when the governor was talking about this, she thinks the state should just hop back to that previous law, and her main focus seemed to be tornadoes, floods, and and that kind of thing, like. We need to have a vehicle that the governor can sign a piece of paper and say the tornado that just ripped through the town is an, is a disaster and emergency. I think she wasn't she she was she uh, seems to have cooling her heels on disaster declarations related to COVID. So yeah, that's, and, that's and kind of the context of why I was asking. Sure, and, and I don't think anybody disagrees with that concept that um, you know, the emergency management law needs to be available as an important mm -hmm. tool in the toolbox for a tornado, a flood, a fire, what I'll call it, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but an ordinary disaster, something that's not COVID that's really extraordinary. Uh, that's the type of, of confusion and chaos that I think the the court's order has invited, and that's why I'm really hopeful that the Supreme Court will give us some clarity here in short order. So you want you want to stay essentially of the district court, but then you more largely want the Supreme Court to take up this whole issue pronto. That's correct. Okay, that's correct. Uh, all right, so let's just talk about where you are on mask and distancing mandates. No fan of mandates going forward. We do now have a, a variant that seems to be stalking us all. Yes, certainly true. We have the the. They call it the Delta variant that's mm -hmm. coming along. Certainly the numbers in some areas have been moving in the wrong direction. There's mm -hmm. no dispute about that. But we also have the advantage now of a year, year and a quarter of experience, not just from Kansas, but from other states. And you, know, you can look around the country. You can look at states, uh, for example, Florida. You can look at states like South Dakota, even states like Texas, Nebraska, Oklahoma, that were much more restrained in their approach to you know, the government's involvement in, in the emergency response. And the reality is they weathered COVID about as well as anybody. So I think that this instinct that was so present for some early on during the disaster, back in the spring of 2020, the instinct to mandate as a, a sort of necessary tool in order to respond to the pandemic uh, has really been proven uh, inadvisable. It's not necessary to mandate in order to uh, get an effective public health response. So I'm not a fan of not, new not, mandates. Not worth a mandate because masks don't work? Not worth a mandate because mandates cause a revulsion. And I think the objective here is to help inform people, educate people, and persuade people to do smart public health things. I think more people would have worn a mask if you had made it voluntary from the get-go? I believe that, yes. Hmm. All right. What about vaccinations? I certainly could. Uh, uh, I'm skeptical that you would support a a vaccination mandate. <clears throat> we do have them. Little kids go to school and they just they get hit with the shots. Right. That's still a thing. Uh, 
it is still a thing. No, no vaccination mandates uh, mm-hmm. for COVID. I, I, again, for a couple of reasons. First of all, the same point I just made with respect to masking. Uh, you know, the old expression is you, you catch more flies with sugar than you do with vinegar. And I just don't think uh, trying, government <laughs> trying to mandate a vaccination is a very smart move at all, period, end of story. But number two, more generally, uh, you know, people do have uh, a, a right, well, actually the Kansas Supreme Court in a different context calls it a right to bodily integrity. I don't mean to conflate the two yeah. debates. That's not my point. Like but, abortion. But it is, a, it is quite a thing for the government to order a needle to be stuck in somebody's arm. I've been, <laughs> frankly, uh, reluctant to require that, to support requiring that, uh, even in a law enforcement context uh, with respect to mandatory blood draws. I was one of the few attorneys general that suggested um, that the Constitution ought to require a warrant before law enforcement sticks a needle in your arm. Like for a ex- DUI like test? Like for a DUI, okay. yeah. By the way, uh, I, I was not on the prevailing side of that. Uh, the courts ultimately ruled that it is permissible in some circumstances to do a warrantless blood draw. But, you know, this is not that circumstance. This is, mm-hmm. uh, this is where we have a lot more runway, if you will, in order to take off. It's a much broader circumstance. And I just think that these are individual decisions for individual citizens, uh, not for a government mandate. Very much understand that argument uh, about individual liberty uh, to reject modern medicine. Uh, but how far should we carry that? How much death, how much sickness is, should be allowed before we reach that breaking point in which government needs to step in and require, you know, basically send troops out to give people vaccinations. Is 50 million dead Americans the benchmark? 100 million? Is there some limit? Well, I'm, I'm quite certain we're nowhere close to that limit. No. And beyond that, uh, you know, I don't think I'll <laughs> speculate about if or where there's a line. My own view is that, uh, you know, medical care, vaccines, it's a personal decision. People ought to be entrusted with it. And persuasion is a better tool than mandates. Yeah, and and I wonder if that applies to abortion as well. It's another even more personal, more profound question. It I understand that point, but the you know the, there is of course a difference, which is at least in the view of those of us on the pro life side, there are two persons' interests who have to be accounted for in the abortion context. <laughs> that is uh, not so, or at least less so, in the vaccination context. All right, are you vaccinated by the way? I am. Yeah. Okay. Uh, All right. All right. We're going to just pretend right now in the closing here that you just uh, one of the favorite political events of mine is the state fair. And I I presume you've seen some of the state fair debates. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Where there's yelling. Kansas tradition. It's a live crowd and there's singing and cowbells and uh, they yell at the candidates. And one of my great uh, memories is somebody yelling at Pat Roberts and Senator Roberts just pivoted on his heel and told the the screamer, he goes, that's right. (laughs) I think he was blaming Harry Reid for all of America's problems. Uh, So we'll say you just had a rousing, uh, delightful debate at the state fair. And let's hear your closing about why you should be governor. Kansas can do so much better. We're coming off of a decade here where we've had very difficult problems that didn't get addressed and solved, whether it was foster kids uh, living in contractors' offices or whether it was the inability to deliver unemployment benefits to you know, some person laid off in Wichita while at the same time shipping hundreds of millions of dollars to fraudsters overseas. The basics of government have too long been ignored. And I think that at the end of the day, what we want to do is turn the page on all of that, not relitigate it and say, 
how are we going to do better tomorrow? How are we going to fix this machine that is the state of Kansas? How are we going to make this a more reliable state for people to make investment decisions, a more attractive state for our kids to choose to stay home? All the things that we care about. Uh, in order to get to those uh, discussions and do better, we got to get our house in order first. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Attorney General Derek Schmidt, uh, candidate for governor. I'm Tim Carpenter of the Kansas Reflector. Thanks for listening.